Our New Testament reading this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And this morning I'll read verses 1 through 12, the wedding at Cana. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. In our sermon text this morning, we have two passages. The first is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our second passage is in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Amen. That's beautiful, girls. And, and Trey, thank you. If your uh, leader can get his uh, little hickey-do on the guitar right, we'd be doing good, wouldn't we? Uh, I don't know what you call those things. Uh, just take a moment to look at each other uh, and look, you know, probably right next to you is flesh and blood, uh, blood kin, but look beyond that even and to those that have uh, been made one because of Jesus. Uh, and just, I mean, I want to do that. I just want to look. I just want to span around. Uh, because we've been reminded once again, very vividly uh, this month, uh, that you might not see those folks next Sunday. You know, um, 
So enjoy the, the wine of fellowship that the Lord has given us on this planet. But know this, he saved the good wine to lighter. And one day we'll be singing with Kristen again uh, with the great throng around the throne, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and power and blessing and dominion and strength. That day's coming. Uh, but while we're here together, let's enjoy one another. Let's be thankful for one another. Let's love one another. Let's not be over, overly critical of each other. Let's put one another first. Let's outdo one another in showing honor that God would be glorified in our midst. So don't take that person that's sitting next to you or behind you or a couple rows back or on the front rows or the back rows. Don't, don't take their, their lives on this planet for granted. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, as you've seen, uh, 2 Peter, uh, the first verse of 2 Peter, we've used it today as a springboard to one of the most important and most wonderful portions of Scripture in the Bible. I've already had one brother tell me today, there's no way you're going to get that text in one message. And he's right, because I look back at our study of Romans about 11 or 12 years ago, and we spent about seven messages on this passage. Uh, but that, that doesn't even come close to Donald Gray Barnhouse's com commentary, which contains 15 chapters on these six verses. 15 chapters. He wrote, this passage is not only the heart of Romans, but the heart of the New Testament and the heart of the whole Bible. I'm convinced today that after many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important of the whole Bible. Now, here's what I want you to hear. He said this, understand them and you will understand the whole Bible. Fail to understand their meaning and you will be in darkness concerning most of Scripture. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, this whole section is absolutely crucial for a true understanding of Christian doctrine and the way of salvation. We therefore cannot examine it too closely or too carefully. So we're going to be doing it a disservice today in applying only one message to it. But I did want you to see the connection. Peter starts his last words, his last written words to the church of Jesus Christ with the statement that our faith is obtained by the righteousness of God. And so therefore, I wanted to go back to this passage and try to unpack that a little bit. What exactly does that mean? But if you understand these six verses, then you understand Christianity. That's how important they, they are. That's how vital they are. That's how beautiful they are. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from this passage this morning. Let's ask God to do that. Father, thank you for your word, the entirety of it the inerrancy of it, the infallibility of it, the perfection of it. 
the light and the hope and the comfort and the instruction and the sanctification that it gives us. Thank you. Thank you. May we not take your word for granted. May we long for it more than our necessary food. May we crave the pure spiritual milk of your word as an infant craves for his mother's milk. Please give us that heart. So while we thank you for the entirety of the Bible, we thank you today for this passage, this beautiful passage from the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, which lays out for us the gospel, what the gospel truly is. So give us ears to hear and hearts not only to embrace it, but to rejoice in it and be glad. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your righteousness through which we obtain the faith that saves us. Help us to understand that today, Father, in a deeper way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that makes this text so rich is the fact that we see several great themes of Scripture in this text. I mean, just, look, just glance over it again. We won't read it again. Gerald's already done a great job of that. But just, just, just look at the great words of the faith that are in these mere six verses. For you've got faith in verses 22, 25, and 26. Well, why is that word important? Well, it's the only way one is saved. It's the only way one is saved. We're saved by faith alone. And that faith is not of ourselves. It's a what? A gift. It's a gift. Ephesians 2 tells us that very clearly. Then you've got the word justification, verses 24 and 26. And Paul unpacks this great theme in chapters 4 and 5. So I encourage you to, to go through Romans again. I mean, if you had to pick one book of the Bible, if you were on a stranded island and you couldn't have the whole Bible and you could only pick one book, Romans would be the one you would probably need to pick. But justification, we could do a whole series on justification. Every one of these words. And I'm trying to do one message here, connecting us to our study of 2 Peter. Then you've got the word grace in verse 24, the free gift of salvation. You've got redemption in verse 24, the purchase price of Jesus' blood, which bought us out of slavery to sin and death. What a topic! What a subject! I mean, can you get any more stuff in a passage, in six verses? Then you've got propitiation. Yeah, we'll, we will teach our kids rockers that word, okay, at, one, at some point. The removal of God's wrath by the sacrifice of Jesus. And then, of course, you've got our subject for today, the righteousness of God. So you've got faith, justification, Grace, redemption, propitiation, and righteousness. We see in verse 21, 22, 25, and 26. This, this great theme of God's righteousness runs through these six verses like a backbone. Holding it all together. Giving it stability. And giving us great, great hope. Now, if you remember... Our corporate study of, of Romans and your own personal study and reading of Romans, 
I want to encourage you, if you're not familiar with Romans, that's the book you, you need to be familiar with the whole Bible. But if, if you're going to focus on one, that, this is the one you need to focus on. Get familiar with the book of Romans. So if you are, you know that for two chapters, beginning at chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has been hammering the wrath of God. He's been hammering it. The wrath of God. What every human being deserves because of our sin. But now... In chapter 3, about midway through, the inspired subject has been changed from the wrath of God, which we all deserve, to the righteousness of God, which none of us have, none of us were born with, but which all of us need to be able to stand before him and enter heaven when we die. Because we will all, listen, We will all be judged on the basis of our righteousness. Please understand that. If you choose to continue to reject Jesus, one day you will stand before God and you will be judged on the basis of your righteousness. Good luck. Good luck with that. So this is our huge problem, as expressed in Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. None is righteous. That's why my wish of good luck to you was pretty empty, because there is none righteous. No, not one. But Jesus, God in the flesh, the incarnate word, said in Matthew 48 in the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so what gives here? What gives? None is righteous, but you got to be perfect. You got to be righteous. What's the answer? As our esteemed president might say, come on, man. What's the deal? You, 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 you require righteousness, but we ain't got it. How do you reconcile this? How do you solve this quandary? No one is perfect, but perfection is required to enter into glory. Has God put us in an impossible-to-solve scenario, demanding perfection when we don't have it? What, what kind of God is this? In the lead-up to this text, again, if you're familiar, you know this. In the lead-up to the text that we're focusing on this morning, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul has placed every human being under the wrath of God. He throws Jews and Gentiles into the same boat. He's telling his fellow Jews, you have no advantage over the non-Jew. We're all in the same boat. The boat of zero righteousness. And thankfully, 
He doesn't leave us hanging. He begins to lay out the divine remedy for our desperate situation. Praise the Lord. And he begins with the righteousness of God. One of the big theological questions that we must deal with here is this. In these verses, is Paul referring to the righteousness of God or a righteousness from God? And I love and agree with the answer that James Montgomery Boyce gives. Quote, surely this is a case where we do not have to choose between the two, for both are correct. Both are correct. In short, Scripture shows us the righteousness of God in the way he deals with sin and does not overlook it. He doesn't just shove it under the carpet, look the other way. No, in his perfect righteousness and holiness, remember we just sang that, holy, 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 in his perfect holiness and righteousness, he deals with sin. And in Scripture we see the righteousness from God in the way that sinners are saved. For listen, if God did not give us his righteousness through our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, there is absolutely no way any of us could be saved. Not a single one of us. None of us could provide the righteousness that God demands So in his love for us, since before the world's foundation, God provides it for us. Consider a couple of background passages. Uh, Further on in Romans, Romans chapter 10, Paul begins to reveal his broken heart over his fellow Jews. And in verses 1 to 3, he writes this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, fellow Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, you don't have to be a Jew to fall into that trap. How many people do we know that try to provide their own righteousness? They try to establish their own righteousness. They try to earn their way into heaven. They think, surely there's something that I've got to do to merit heaven, to merit salvation. And they fall into this trap of Paul's fellow Jews. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they seek to establish their own, a total dead end, as the Scriptures teach us. But then in Philippians 3, Paul also says this, verses 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, here's the key phrase, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from trying to obey 
perfectly every jot and tittle of the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Donald Barnhouse makes this simple yet profound observation. He said, quote, God is righteousness. God demands righteousness. And God, hallelujah, provides righteousness. If those three statements are understood, then the whole gospel will be understood. If those three statements are not understood, then the gospel can never be understood. Now, let's unpack these statements together. I've taken those three statements and slapped them on your seat saver there so you can follow along. Let's do some corporate pondering today on these three statements that Barnhouse laid before us many years ago in his excellent commentary on Romans. If you want a commentary on Romans, I highly, highly recommend Donald Gray Barnhouse. Um, so first, God is righteous. God is righteous. Everybody here, uh, if you've been around any, any length of time, should have no problem with this one, okay? Uh, and just let me let the Word of God speak just for a moment. Uh, Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Indignation toward those who aren't righteous, which is everybody, okay? But thankfully, he's taking care of his people. And we'll, we'll get to that, okay? Psalm 71, 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Psalm 116, verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. He really is. You think about it. He demands righteousness, but then he gives it to us. He gives it to us to meet the demand. How merciful can you be? Isaiah 5, 16, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So, God is righteous. Secondly, God demands righteousness. God demands righteousness. Let's go back uh, to uh, Psalm, the book of Psalms, and the 24th Psalm, okay? Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Let's just start at verse 1, and we'll stop about halfway through. It's only, only a 10-verse psalm. We don't need the, probably won't need the second part of it. Um, psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, here's a section I want us to hone in on, verses 3 through 5. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That would be a righteous person, right? Okay? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So here's some questions based on primarily verses 3 and 4. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Stand up if you have that, if that describes you. Clean hands, pure heart in yourself. Don't, I know some of you are probably thinking ahead of me. You know where I'm going, okay? But in yourself, who has clean hands and a pure heart? Stand up if that describes you. Okay. Now, I have to stand because I'm behind a pulpit. If I sit, you won't see me, but I, I, I wouldn't be standing. Because I, I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, who at times uh, will lift up their souls to what is false? In other words, a little idolatry. You put something ahead of God or before God. Okay. Stand up if that doesn't describe you. Of course, all of us, all of us have done that. And we all continue to do it in this life. Who at times will swear deceitfully or sin with their tongue? Okay, who's, who's never sinned with their tongue? Stand up. Of course, all of us have sinned with our tongue and continue to sin with our tongue. So, how can we enter God's presence? To enter God's presence, we've got to have clean hands. and We've got to have a pure heart. We've got to be holy on the outside, hands, holy on the inside, heart. We can't be an idolater in any way. We can never sin with our tongue. So who can enter God's presence? Well, let's, let's read on. Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So this leads us to Barnhouse's statement number three. God provides righteousness. Here we have an example of what Paul has just said, what we've just read in verse 21 of Romans 3. Remember what he said? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, manifested, fancy word of just, it's been revealed, it's been shown, it's been demonstrated. Okay? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Okay, you, you don't get it by law keeping because you can't keep the whole law. And then the last phrase of verse 21, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, what's Paul talking about there? He's talking about right here what we're looking at in Psalm 24. David in the role of prophet, okay, is telling us he's prophesying about how people are going to be saved. He's, he's predicting about how people will be able to ascend the hill of the Lord and enter his presence. The law and the prophets bear witness. 
Paul is talking about in Romans 3, text like Psalm 24 and Isaiah 53. And we could go on with more. The law and the prophets bearing witness to how people are saved. How God brings his lost sheep home. Don't you love the gospel? I mean, my heart's about to burst. And I'm so thankful Christian and Grace understood the gospel. Commenting on Psalm 24, James Montgomery Boyce writes this. I suggest that in order to understand verses 4 and 5, it is best to take the phrases in an inverse order. In other words, although it is true that we must approach God sincerely and trustingly to find salvation, it is better to say, listen, that these characteristics are provided for us by God as a result of justification. Now, I don't have time to unpack justification today. That's in this text, too. We've already said that, okay? Basically, at justification, God declares us righteous in Christ. It's a declaration. It's not something that it has anything to do with how we are acting or living. It's a declaration. It's a, like a court declaration. It's, it's, it, it's, it's Christ's righteousness being written into the ledger of our spiritual life. It's an, it's an, it's a, an accounting term. It's a, it's a giving of of righteousness by divine declaration, okay? I'm, I'm trying hard to give you a nutshell view of justification. See, see, why we, see why Barnhouse has 15 chapters on these verses and why we did seven or eight messages on these verses? There's just so much here, okay? Boy, sums it up. That is... They are a part of the blessing that verse 5 promises, okay? Verse 5 says he will receive blessing from the Lord. And what is that blessing? He'll be able to ascend. He'll be able to come into God's presence, okay? Now, why does boy say that? Why can't he say that? Because of scriptural truths describing depraved humanity, which we have consistently studied throughout our history as a church and therefore should be very much aware of. So we won't take a whole lot of time unpacking those again, but things like no one seeks God. Romans 3.11, no one, no one, universal negative in the Greek, not a single one, not a single person. There's no exceptions to this rule. No one is born seeking God. God. That's why I don't understand seeker-sensitive services unless you're talking about services for people that are already born again. Because the seeking of God begins when you get a new heart. No one with their old heart seeks God. Okay? So seeker-sensitive services are okay if you're talking about services that appeal to and are designed for Save people because they're the only ones that are seeking God. On April 1st, 1980, when God rescued me and delivered me, he put me on a path of continually striving to seek 
him until he decides to take me home to glory. I will never know him in all his fullness. I will never know him in all his completeness. My whole life after salvation is a life of seeking God. And that's true for you as well. No one seeks God. The verse before, Romans 3.10, none, none, not a single one, none. Again, universal negative, no one is righteous. None is righteous. So no one seeks God. That is, no one tries to ascend the hill of the Lord that David is talking about in Psalm 24. No one sets their gaze on the, the top of that hill and starts walking up. No one, not a single person. No one has a pure heart. No one. No one is born with a pure heart. They're born with dead hearts. As we teach our children in Sunday school, they're born with black hearts. Wow, what a controversy that was when we first introduced this curriculum. to the, Who was there for that? That was fun. But anyway, you don't like black heart? Use another term. Use dead heart, okay? Just we got to let our kids know they desperately need Jesus. And we're not going to soft sell that. We're not going to gloss that over. We're not going to frilly that up, you know, with some kind of, oh, you're so sweet. No, you're dead in sin, dear one. We love you. You're precious. You're a gift from God, but you've got a dead heart. You were born with a dead heart. And unless God moves to give you a new heart, you're going to be in big trouble when your life is over here. Our kids need to know that. That's the only loving thing to do. It's the only truly loving thing to do. And I trust you're with your elders on that and the leadership of our children's department. We also know from Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteousness that we're born with is what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Dirty cloths, whatever translation you have. Polluted garment, I think the ESV says. I've never got away from filthy rags. I've always loved that one. I think that's NASB. I've never, even though I'm an ESV guy, that's one place where I st stick with filthy rags. I like that. I like that. I like that better than polluted garment, okay? I guess I can identify with filthy rags better than polluted garment. But anyway, in other words, no one has clean hands. So using Psalm 24 language to define these New Testament phrases... No one seeks God, i.e., no one ascends the hill of the Lord. None is righteous, i.e., no one has a pure heart. Our righteousness is, is as filthy rags. In other words, no one has clean hands. No one, no one. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. According to John Calvin, the heart of man is a perpetual idol factory, churning out false gods that we continually Lift our soul too. And the first one that usually comes out of that idol factory is self. Self. We love ourselves. We're born loving ourselves. Bottom line, in our natural state, our righteousness won't cut it. We desperately need an alien righteousness. We need someone else's. So looking back at Psalm 24, the salvific order would be this. You would start with verse 5. Righteousness from God, 
resulting in blessing from the Lord, resulting in clean hands and a pure heart as a result of the gift of righteousness or the imputed righteousness of Christ. Hallelujah. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 very beautifully, don't we? For our sake, he, God, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, to be sin, who knew no sin. Get it? We knew no righteousness. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus became sin so that we could become righteousness. This is the gospel, beloved. God made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him, in him, not in ourselves, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Songwriter, hymn writer Joseph Hart knew this concept. He expressed it in a hymn written in the 1700s. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness, i.e. righteousness, fondly dream All the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Think about it, dear brother and sister. Think about it. Just think about it. Let's swim today, okay? Let's swim together in the ocean of grace. With Psalm 24 as a backdrop. We had no desire to to ascend the hill of the Lord. We were perfectly content and happy on the dung hills of the world. We had no longing to stand in God's holy place, worshiping and fellowshipping with him. We were absolutely delighted in our places of self-styled and self-centered gratification, Worshipping ourselves and our idols of money and sex and pleasure and popularity and sports and all kinds of worldly things. Our hands were dirty and our hearts were dirtier. We were lifting up our souls to anything and everything but God. We were people of unclean lips dwelling among people just like us. We were lost, and we didn't even know it. We weren't even seeking for a solution. We weren't trying to be found. We were out without any trace of the righteousness needed to be counted among God's people. God could have justly and righteously sent us directly to hell forever. But he didn't. He didn't. He came to us. Christmas is only, what, three months away, two months away? What a great time of year. He came to us. He rescued us. He delivered us from our great peril. And how did he do that? How? How? By giving us, who had no righteousness whatsoever, His righteousness, the righteousness of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. A righteousness apart from human effort. A righteousness apart from human 
character, a righteousness apart from our own deserving, a righteousness given freely and graciously to those who deserve hell, a righteousness from God given to those who were enemies of God, a righteousness purchased by the blood of Jesus. We're going to be remembering that in just a few moments. God's own righteousness, which ultimately produces practical righteousness in the receivers, right? Sanctification. We receive God's righteousness, and that begins his process of making us righteous day by day. Never perfect, right? Until we see him, we will be as he is. But according to Titus 2.11, the grace of God that brings true salvation has appeared to all men and has shown us that God has done everything required for his lost, desperate sheep. Just ponder it, people. Ponder it. Ponder the jaw-dropping, breathtaking, amazing contrast. Every religion, every world religion except ours, except Christianity, is marked by things that man is supposed to do for the God, little g, of that particular religion. Only in Christianity does God provide everything for the follower. This is the great difference between Christianity and all the other religions that originate with men. The Christian faith is a faith that has been revealed from heaven. God does it all, even providing the righteousness we need to ascend the hill of the Lord, and to stand in the holy place and be accepted by him. Now, that absolutely blows me away. What is your response today? Well, let's try to move to a, to a close here. How many of you recall when you first started grasping these great, great reformational, yes, biblical truths. I remember around the late 80s or early, early to mid-90s when awesome truths like this began to dawn on me and on my feeble mind as I, I read books like The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur and Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul and um, books like that and, 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 and the transformation began to take place that is still going on not even close to being complete. And at the same time, great hymns began to come alive with meaning. Hymns that I used to, used to mouth as a lost Methodist without any, without any clue, no clue, totally clueless as to what I was singing. Here's one, a hymn that the saints of God have sung and prayed musically for over 200 years. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor 
daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, i.e. righteousness, like a fetter or a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now I ask you this morning, should believers sing and pray like this? Is this the biblical way to, to sing and pray? And you're probably saying, well, come on, of course it is. That's one of my favorite hymns. One of our church's favorite hymns. Of course it's okay to sing that. Now here's why I asked that question. Because several years ago, some of you may be, remember this, um, an individual challenged this very song, one of the old classics of reformational Christianity, challenged this song saying that the line prone to leave the God I love was not biblical because a person doesn't leave the God they love, they leave the God they hate. And before I continue with that story, quick side note right here. Another word of warning to us reformational folks. We reformed folk, folk are often accused of being hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-Calvinists, which means we don't believe in missions or evangelism because we believe in election and because God has elected everybody and he knows, already knows who he's going to save and who's going to be in heaven when it's all said and done. We really don't need to do anything in the way of missions and evangelism. Well, we all know that's not true and that's not the way we are. That, of course, is a caricature of the Reformed faith and Reformed teaching. But here's another hyper we should be concerned with as well. Becoming hypercritical. Hypercritical. For some reason, at least in my experience, this seems to affect Reformed folks more than other branches of the church. And I don't really know why that is, but that just seems to be the way it is. And may, I'm praying God will, will protect us from that. Anyway, this hypercritical brother got me thinking about this song and its words. Here are some questions for you to ponder, as I've pondered. Are you prone to wander? Of course. Don't look at me all spiritual. Of course you are. I am too, you know. Yes. Yes. Do you at times battle a wandering heart that strays from the straight and narrow? We all do. We're still in flesh, right? We're, st we're not complete. He hasn't completed the work that he began in us when he saved us. But he will. He's promised that he will. But we're not there yet. Are you prone to sometimes leave God through sinful thoughts, sinful words, selfish actions, uh, neglect of spiritual duty, failure to forgive, refusal to put others first, lack of devotion, lack of prayer, uh, diminishing hunger for God's Word, et cetera, et cetera. We could all go on with things that we've all experienced and are familiar with, right? Okay. But God in His mercy and grace doesn't kick us to the curb. He keeps working on us and keeps sanctifying us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Hallelujah. So we would all agree, right? I think I hear, I think I'm getting the vibe. We are all prone to wander. Uh, we, we battle a wandering heart sometimes. We, we're prone to sometimes leave God, 
quote, leave God through, through sinful, ungodly actions and thoughts and words. Right. But, last question. Do you love God? Can you say like Peter, Lord, you know my heart. You know that I love you. Every believer in here can answer yes to that. And for those of us who can answer yes to that question, even though we, we know we don't love him as we should or as we will in the future, I say loudly and clearly this is a biblical prayer put to song. A very biblical prayer, no matter what the hypercritical famous guy might say. And I've reworded it this morning. I've reworded it, keeping the same heart attitude. And I want to share that with you real quick. Dear God, I'm a debtor to your grace. Every day I realize I wouldn't be alive apart from your common grace. And I wouldn't be spiritually alive apart from your effectual saving grace. So God, I'm begging you. Let your goodness, your righteousness, which I do not deserve, chain me to yourself. Chain me to your word. Chain me to Jesus. I need that chain, Lord, because in myself, in my flesh, dwells nothing good. Left to myself, I would leave you. Because my flesh is prone to wander. I confess my inability to stay with you apart from your binding righteousness. I confess my perseverance as a saint is due only to your preserving power in my reborn life. So chain me, Lord. Chain me. Keep me. Bind me to yourself. Crush every act of rebellion that rises in my heart. Destroy every ounce of arrogance that would give myself any credit for my standing with you. I do love you, Lord. But only because you loved me first. And my love is often weak, watered down at times by the enticements of a Satan-run world system that clamors for my devotion. So master me, Lord. Master me. Shape me. Incline my heart to your word. And seal it for the courts of glory. Do whatever you must do to keep me trusting you and fearing you and praising you. Until Jesus comes or calls me home. I hope your heart joined with me in that. For I believe that this kind of praying and this kind of singing is rooted in basic scriptural truths. Truths like the flesh profits nothing. In my flesh dwells no good thing. A truth we just sang a little bit ago. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Truths like God is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom he made our wisdom and our righteousness 
and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I don't know about you, but the criticism of that great song almost sounded boastful to me. God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me close with Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers. Therefore, Jesus, having taken the place of the believer, having rendered a full equivalent to divine wrath for all that his people ought to have suffered as the result of sin, the believer can shout with glorious triumph, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Not God, for he has justified. Not Christ, for he has died. Yes, has risen again. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or what I shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done, and in what he is doing for me now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. One last word to the unsaved who may be here today, those who are not Christian. Maybe you're asking yourself, how do I get this righteousness from God? Romans 3.22 tells you very clearly, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Salvation is by faith. You receive God's righteousness by faith. The gift of saving righteousness comes by believing that Jesus is the Son of God and Lord of all, and that God raised him from the dead after he died for your sin, which implies confession that you are a sinner and need Jesus' death as payment, resulting in crying out like the tax collector in Luke 18, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's your only hope, the mercy of God. God must have mercy on you. And right now, even as I'm speaking, my heart is begging God to do that, to give you mercy. Dear unsaved friend, what you could not produce, perfect righteousness, has been provided for you. What could not come by obeying the law comes by grace, grace alone. What could not be given by Moses flows freely from Christ. Trust him today and be saved. Today is the day. It is the acceptable time, the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your righteousness given to us in the person of your son, Jesus. And what a joy it is now to remember that great gift at your table of grace. Bless our communion with you and with each other for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.